sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who like their political conversation in more than two colors. Those colors would be red and blue for those of you not paying attention. If this is your first time here, welcome. And if you dig what you hear today, please consider following YDHTY and sharing it with one friend you think might like it too. The independent movement grows by word of mouth. Now, in our last episode, we discussed how the interstate highway system led to many businesses relocating outside of city centers where rents and property were cheaper. But it also created a spatial mismatch between lower income workers and their jobs, leaving many in America's cities without access to them. Try pronouncing spatial mismatch three times fast. This took me like eight takes to get that right. At any rate, this problem was especially acute in communities of color because residents were often not allowed to relocate closer to employment due to racist housing laws, and their neighborhoods were often divided to make way for new roads. And this episode's guest, Colin Yarbrough, discovered how extensive this problem was in his hometown of Dallas, Texas, while working on a research project, and he turned that project into his new book, Paved Away, Infrastructure, Policy, and Racism. We discuss his book and the larger subject of how racism often takes the form of people operating unknowingly in systems that disadvantage another. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. The, the first thing I want to discuss in this episode is your background. Yeah. Because that is very interesting. So... <laughs> And you're talking to a guy who has interviewed uh, rodeo cowboys turned congressional <laughs> candidates. So for me to call somebody interesting, there's a very high bar. So could you just give the listener a, a little little more detail on your story? Yeah, I mean, I am from Texas, but I'm not a rodeo cowboy. So I hope that uh, doesn't disappoint people. <laughs> it's all right, Texas. But yeah, so my background is I am originally from Dallas. I was I was born in Houston, but got out of there as quickly as possible. You know, Dallas people always love to fuel some bizarre division between the two cities and went out of state to go to school. My undergraduate degree is engineering and management. And a lot of that was focused on sustainability. But when I got out of school, I couldn't find a job. I was in the wake of the 08, 09 recession. And I ended up working for a natural gas utility, kind of selling my soul and you know, some of my idealist ways. And so I got into infrastructure, building pipelines all across the state of Texas. But I think there was, you know, at the same time, I was running this nonprofit bakery with my mother uh, that we were kind of doing on the side. And around 2019, it was just kind of reaching a fever pitch. And I was like, okay, like, I'm 30. If I'm going to give this a shot, this is probably a better time to do it now rather than later. And so I left and quit quit my work as an engineering manager and started life as a full-time baker trying to build up this this bakery with my mom and 
sometime late 2019, that's when I felt the call to ministry. And so I, I started looking at seminaries and ended up at SMU here in Dallas. Um, and that's where things kind of really began to start taking some turns because I had joined thinking I was, you know, going to focus only on the bakery and, you know, trying to support that mission. But things really started changing once I got into seminary. Yeah. So, and just to recount, a journey from civil engineer to nonprofit baker to ministry isn't followed up with the phrase, and then things got really interesting. <laughs> yeah, usually but that probably case, precedes the, the right, like, but because that's a fairly circuitous route, yeah, as it is. What happens when you get to SMU? It's it's funny. Uh, so the name of the bakery is Full Circle Bakery, and and people mm-hmm. love to joke. They're like, "Oh, you've come full circle." And yeah. In fact, I was given a plaque that said that when I left the utility industry. They're like, "Oh, you've come full circle. Like you've gone back to the bakery." Uh-huh. And the irony is that I went full circle again back to engineering <laughs> once I got to seminary, and I didn't expect that. Yeah. That was never part of my thought. But I had some friends who were also in seminary classes with me taking, you know, Old Testament and, you know, church and social context, all these kinds of classes. And they're like, hey, you might enjoy these design and innovation classes over in the engineering school. They they do a lot of work with social justice and things like that, where you might, you know, be able to blend in some of your bakery stuff with built environment. And I was like, oh, cool. I hadn't thought about that. And sure enough, like the first class that I took, context and impact of design, in the spring of 2020, fundamentally altered the trajectory uh, of my life. And ultimately, you know, that seminary was what pushed me out of seminary and back into engineering. Because as I was learning about the built environment and the impact of public housing failures and all the ways that historical context, racial context, economic context, how those have carried through impacts from the past into today, I couldn't help but start to have all these gears clicking and turning in my mind as I was also hearing similar stories in the Old Testament work and these ideas of, you know, unjust cities and all of the ways that's not what we were called to do. Mm-hmm. And it was like everything clicked. And I realized, that's when I realized, oh, this is probably the path I need to start going down. Yeah, that's cool. So what is the, your, your mom's bakery, what does that focus on? So the main focus is we source as locally as possible within the state of Texas, supporting local farms, flour, you know, chocolate, whatever. And then the proceeds go full circle back into local nonprofits here in Dallas that are working to uplift marginalized uh, communities and workers in the food industry and helping people get opportunities to start their own businesses home-based businesses and things like that. So in some ways, it's kind of the 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 food infrastructure, if you yeah. will. But yeah, that's kind of the idea behind it. Yeah, yeah. So there's like social justice in your family then. It's like a family business. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, yeah. my mother was in school. She started her Master of Divinity, I think, when I was in third grade. Yeah. And was going off to classes in Fort Worth. And we were having to like take turns as kids making dinner throughout the week and all these things. And she finally finished her doctorate 
of ministry in white privilege and racism in the church. That's what her dissertation was. So yeah. in a lot of ways, I was primed for this. Like our dinner table conversations growing up were very different than I imagine yeah. a lot of oh, people. Yeah. But I didn't, I hadn't made that leap mm-hmm. in my mind to how my actions as an engineer, mm-hmm. as someone who built things, built infrastructure, how that played out in any sort of social justice way until I got to seminary and started having those conversations of, okay, this is what I feel called to do in my own faith tradition. And here's also this historical context and impact that carries through to today. And I just, I couldn't unsee any of that after that point. And so what happened there? Because you started writing a term paper and that's really when you discovered some stuff about your hometown. You know, it's, funny how something so small of just choosing to write a paper about a highway can fundamentally change your <laughs> the direction of your life for forever. And so it was in that context and impact of design class, we had to write a some sort of term paper about a design element in Dallas. And mm-hmm. there were some examples listed in Central Expressway, which is kind of the main highway that runs through the center of Dallas, mm-hmm. kind of north-south. And it's a highway used every day. It was right outside of SMU's campus. And so I was like, oh, maybe there's some cool stuff about the history. And pretty early on, as I started digging into the history, I ran across a New York Times article from 1988, 1989. So like right when I was born. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were talking about how they had relocated over 1,100 bodies of formerly enslaved people to make space for the the highway. And I just, I I couldn't fathom it for one, the thought of 1,100 bodies being moved for anything, let alone for the construction of a highway. And there was something so fundamentally unjust about that, that Mm -hmm. we would disturb Black space and people's eternal rest to expand a highway that we couldn't just shift it to prevent that from happening. And I think deep down, I just, I knew that that wouldn't have happened if it was a white cemetery based on my own experience, Mm -hmm. building infrastructure, dealing with, you know, those types of protections, those archeological protections. I just, I was like, I like, there's a lot of things that just didn't sit well about that. So um, if, if you don't mind going into a little detail there, so if I want to build something, like let's, again, let's just say, if I want to build a highway and there's a cemetery in the way, what's the typical procedure? Does it get done? Or, yes. Okay. Yeah, so when Central was originally built, those protections yeah. weren't in place. And so they paved yeah. over those bodies originally. So they just built over the graves and built over the cemetery. And when they went to redo it, there were some thoughts like, yeah, we're, we're probably going to run up against some stuff. But once they started digging, they didn't realize how, how bad it was. So um, what year was they, that highway constructed? It was finished in 1949. And they, ex- they did this expansion in 89? Yeah, give or take. Late 80s, so, early 90s. So, so for 40 years, mm. people were just driving over. Yep. See. You know, that part of the story I found was such a weird metaphor 
for racism in this oh. country, yes. right? Because because <laughs> nobody consciously or willfully would ride over somebody's grave. But when the road's paved for you and nobody's telling you otherwise, you just do it. It's routine. You're absolutely right. And that's, yeah. and that's what privilege is, is it's yeah. the ability to not have to think about something because it has been made quote unquote safe for you. You know, it's, and that's why, and, and, and even then, and I think what hurt me so much at a personal level when I found out about just the moving in the 80s, the moving of the bodies in the 80s, because now Central is, is underground. Yeah. It's, it's depressed. Okay. And so when I'm driving, I know that I'm driving under the space where bodies used to be. So that whole area, that whole Freedmanstown known as North Dallas, it was, the highway was one of the elements that kind of put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, for the neighborhood. Yeah. It was several things, you know, public housing, taking away homes, people turned into renters, the highway came through, destroyed the business district, and, you know, having a lack of housing options and all those sorts of things began to really put pressure on a neighborhood. And it eventually spiraled into decline very shortly after the highway was finished. Yeah. The businesses were gone. People were displaced. And so you just cut right through the heart. And so over the 80s and 90s, Dallas was in the process of creating a new arts district and a mm -hmm. new residential area called Uptown. And I had spent a lot of my 20s in this uptown bar district. It's a very hip place for people in their 20s to go, and it's a very white bar district. Mm -hmm. And so I had spent so much of my time in that area in my 20s, and I had parked next to other cemeteries that are in that area, and, and I was always asking, like, why are these here? Like, Why would anybody put a cemetery here? Yeah. And the question I should have been asking was just the opposite of that. Like, why are all of these buildings here? And yeah. I think that's when I began to really make that connection between my own privilege in the city and how the city was built for me, built mm -hmm. for people who look like me, the white male, and built by people who look like me, engineers uh, who look like me, yeah. and, and what that does. And yeah, and so that was really hard to grapple with. How I had, like you said, like I had no, no idea. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. So the guest I had on before this episode was Nathaniel Baum Snow, who you apparently highway infrastructure experts are a small circle <laughs> who knew. But it, but he what he talked about is the way our interstate highway system in the U.S. really worked against the central cities, and what happened is access to cheap land in the suburbs had a lot of people moving out of the central city. The metro regions grew in population, but the central city actually fell. And there was also a very interesting realignment economically because prior to the interstate highway system, people of all different classes worked and lived in the same city, right? Yes. And when that highway system was built, the more knowledge intensive, profitable, businesses, you know, financial services, mm -hmm. legal, tech, and so on, they coalesced in the central city. And the jobs such as manufacturing more what you'd consider manual mm -hmm. labor moved outside. 
but the people in the city stayed. And especially if you were black in America at the time of the interstate highway system, you were not allowed to move outside of the, si the city. No. You just were not permitted. There were communities you couldn't buy in. And uh, even in Massachusetts, where I am, if you look on deeds, you know, the houses mm -hmm. are old enough that they actually have provisions for who can and can't buy, which obviously nobody pays attention to, but they're still, yeah. they're still there. Yeah. And getting back to what we were talking about here is, you know, that highway also, number one, split the community, but number two, really facilitated the economic decline as well, because now people who might be working in a factory or need to work in a warehouse don't have access to that community due to the fact they can't buy property close to their jobs and even more so this is what uh, i'm still working on the very targeted economic decline in these communities in these neighborhoods and understanding which businesses were condemned in eminent domain because this was like these were small businesses these were doctors lawyers these were restaurants. I mean, the the amount of home ownership and small business ownership in not only the North Dallas neighborhood that was impacted yeah. by Central Expressway, but everywhere I kept looking around Dallas, whether mm -hmm. it was Little Mexico, the 10th Street Freedmanstown in yeah. South Dallas, everywhere I looked, a highway came through and destroyed the economic base of the neighborhood and displaced businesses and eliminated this diversity of economic activity that still has not recovered to this day. The city of Dallas is still trying to figure out how do we try to rebuild this because yeah. we drove highways and other infrastructure right through the middle of it or dismantled other infrastructure like streetcars uh, and things like that to yeah. make it more difficult for people to move around. Yeah. One thing I, I should correct too is every now and then I word something and I realize that I'm racist or classist or both. And one thing I'd like to stress as well about, you know, the whole highway system and the effect it had on minority communities is the fact that you had doctors and lawyers in these communities who could afford to get out. It was really the, the people at the lower end of the income spectrum who not only couldn't get out, but also couldn't find work you know, and, and I didn't make that statement clear enough the way I phrased it last time. You know, one thing you said earlier that I'm really interested in is the impact public housing had. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that? And this is a piece that I, I still don't know if I know how to talk about it in a great yeah. way or know yeah. what to do with some of the information. Part of that's because it's not my experience. And yeah. so I'm, I'm doing the best that I can to understand the experience. And I think the context is also really important for each yeah. neighborhood because I tried to include some of these elements of public housing in, in the book. Yeah. The term paper eventually became a book because in this North Dallas community where central expressway was just a few years before in 1943, they built a public housing project as part of a slum clearance initiative mm -hmm. to create new public housing for the neighborhood. And what it did is that it was cited in an area that was not a slum. The residents, there are several newspaper articles where residents are like, this is not, they call it the Highland Park, which is in Dallas, our very exclusive city that has not been annexed. It's right in the middle of Dallas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. White, rich, um, not a part of the city, but right in the middle of the city. Yeah. And so, you know, the residents of North Dallas were like, this is our, this is our Highland Park. 
Like you are putting this housing project in an area full of homeowners and you are turning us into renters. So you are dismantling our wealth and economic prosperity by using eminent domain to purchase these homes mm-hmm. and bulldoze them and then build public housing in its place when there's already enough housing pressures as it is. We can't go anywhere else. Yeah. And you're coming back with less housing on top of it. And by contrast, there were less ho- there were less homes demolished. I think there were only like 19 and they came back with like 65 or some odd. So, you know, it's it's very you can't just say all of it had a really negative impact because I think in Little Mexico, many of the residents would say it had a really positive impact. The Roseland Homes project in North Dallas, part of it is still around. They redeveloped yeah. some of it in the 90s so it would match the aesthetic of the new uptown area. Yeah. But the Little Mexico apartments are still about the same as they were uh, when they were yeah. built. And so it sounds, sounds like that's a little bit more of a mixed bag then, right? It is. And I, yeah. I wasn't really sure what to do with that. I mean, I am a you know a strong proponent of public housing and affordable housing. Yeah. For everyone, I think, especially now, it's it's very difficult to find affordable housing. And I think yeah. we try to solve that with, you know, some one size fits all solution. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is we may actually take away housing that was affordable in the process. 40% folks, that's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition, and in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one. If you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. The thing that I'm curious about, and again, you know, our conversation may be inconclusive in this regard, is getting back to the impact the interstate highway system had on cities and the way the economic base changed. So again, Mm -hmm. you have a lot of folks who originally had jobs that were no longer available in their community. Right. If we're if we're speaking 
in raw economic terms, market forces should have eventually had these folks relocate to find places where they were closer to their jobs. Now, of course, there were racist zoning laws that kept that from happening. But the thing I'm curious about is, did public housing in a way almost strand people in these cities? Would market forces maybe have encouraged migration otherwise if they hadn't created an environment where, hey, you can stay. And it really had me relooking at the whole concept of affordable housing. It's a really good question. I think I, I think it will definitely be an inconclusive <laughs> question, yeah. and like something I'm still yeah. grappling with on, in yeah. my own. And I, I can speak to Dallas's context somewhat, yeah. and it may resonate in other other cities as well. The one of the difficult problems with citing public housing, especially like federal public housing, is that it tends to be in neighborhoods that do not have opportunity, economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what that creates is you then have this, I can't remember his first name, Kane in 1968, mm -hmm. created this hypothesis about the spatial mismatch where you have the people who can fill jobs are mm. mismatched spatially from the jobs that they can also fit. So then that gets back to your idea of like the city, the city centers, people being left behind in the city centers mm -hmm. and suburbanization, employment, suburbanization, making that mismatch. And so creating pressures from an accessibility and mobility standpoint. Mm -hmm. and I think from a housing perspective, there's also this issue of concentrated poverty. And that's something we've seen in Dallas is a lot of the public housing has been cited in areas where there is not currently a lot of economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's so in Dallas's context, that's mostly in the South and the West. And it has continued to feed the cycle because it's just looking at it from one perspective. And I think when you talk about affordable housing, affordable housing is, and I know you've had Chuck Marone on the show. Yeah. And so when you talk about affordable housing, it's again, trying to use this big, large effort to try and solve a problem when it's really an incremental thing that's also encompassing economic mm -hmm. Uh, opportunity for people to start their own businesses and things so that you're incrementally growing that community like we would have done naturally. And I think that's where you have some really good opportunities. But I don't think we've necessarily approached public housing and affordable housing in some of those ways in the past. And, you know, I think get, getting into the incrementalism as well, you know, one of the things I saw or caught on to growing up in Boston was how different the Northeast is from the rest of the country in terms Absolutely. of how it's laid out. Because here, you know, we have this like 17th century infrastructure. And as a result, you know, it's a, it's a pain in the ass to get anywhere by car. Yeah. But people walk more and people generally use public transportation as a result, because we just have no choice. Once you get further West, you know, especially to a city like Dallas or, or, or Houston or cities that were really laid out 
in the post-war era that's that's really where you get the sprawl and and much different quality of life i think you know or way of life your question for you kind of getting back to how all this was planned sure you know one of the questions i have is in your research did did you get the feeling that this was a conscious effort to destroy the black community do you get the feeling there was some deliberate attempt to harm this area or it was more a case of these folks just not having power and not being considered i think it's both and really um it's funny because some of my other research hits on on this idea of power and influence uh, yeah. especially within the infrastructure development process and I'm, I'm still working through the resilience framework for how to undo that we're better off than we were then in terms of like community engagement and stakeholder engagement in the yeah. process. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more opportunities for that now. We're still not great at it. So I think from, from a political, to back up, yeah. yes, you, your intuition is absolutely correct. Dallas still is a white controlled city. Mm -hmm. The money and the power are still very much controlled by wealthy white interests in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Uh, and citizens councils. I'll never forget. I interviewed the Reverend Peter Johnson, and mm -hmm. he was one of he was the youngest member of Dr. King's crew. Dallas was the only city in the world that would not screen the King documentary in the wake of his death. Yeah, it's shocking. And so his job was to come here and get it shown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when he and I were talking last year, he said white or black doesn't matter. He's like, the only color that matters in this city is green. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a hundred percent accurate. You know, the real estate developers, the bankers, the oil industry executives all control everything in Dallas. And so those interests intentionally, in some cases, in the case of Fair Park, where we hold the Texas State Fair. There was actually intentional efforts to destabilize the neighborhood by limiting building permits because they wanted to build parking lots to expand the fair. Yeah. And so in the late 60s, they stopped issuing permits in the area and they issued a study by the Economic Research Association. And when they asked these white fairgoers what would make them more comfortable to go to the fair, you know, the, the people kind of hemmed and hawed in the stuff that we have in the report. And it's like, well, you just, you know, if it wasn't for the race thing, we'd feel, we'd feel better. Or, you know, it's not a place you'd want to go, you know, at night or things like that. This very coded language of, yeah. of racism that's still like, I was like, oh, this could be today. And so when this economic research group was like, if we built up a parking lot, fenced it and lit it, would you feel more safe coming to the area if we basically if we created more space so you didn't have to see black people? And in the report it says with a resounding you know unison, the Dallas residents said, "Yes." It's just flat out racism like we don't want to be around black people, and so we're going to control the infrastructure to make sure we don't have to be anywhere near black people. That's something that I think I've discovered over time. And I've tried to really hammer home 
on episodes where it's relevant, which is, you know, a lot of times the way we study racism or the way white people are taught racism, I like to call it white people, black history, yeah. where, you know, we're taught there was slavery and that was bad. Yeah. And then there was the Klan and they're bad. And then Martin Luther King marched on Washington and, you know, at a time when black people weren't allowed to drink from the same fountain, use the same bathroom and so on, and got everything changed. And then we elected Barack Obama <laughs> and now everything's okay. Right. And that's yeah. kind of the story. And I think what we don't recognize is we don't recognize the, the, the sometimes more passive hmm. forms of racism, one of which being restricting building permits. Yeah. And, and more importantly, I think, and, and again, I'm not going to put myself in the minds of the people who answered that survey, yeah. but they won't overtly say it's about race, but they're saying it. And I think I, and I'll, I'll shut myself up in just a second, but like, you know, I think you even hear this now where, you know, if you look at certain media outlets, the way they talk about the cities, crime raging in the cities, yeah. out of control, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's like, you know, have you been in a city in the last 20 years? Because I'll tell you what, like they're pretty goddamn gentrified. That's the most, the most laughable thing, the most laughable thing about the way some, some political circles talk about the cities. And really, yeah. you know, of course it's, it's a, it's a metaphor for race. So I just, I find the whole disconnection really, really irritating. I'm going to yeah. just rephrase something there though, too, which is, sure. you know, I, I do think, you know, I do think even today, and I actually saw this on TV and I won't say which channel, but there was a story that said Biden releases migrants into the suburbs. And it was very clearly like Democrats, brown people in white space. And that was how it was phrased. And, and I think even today we don't recognize that a lot of people in the suburbs don't understand that most of their understanding still is fed by like the wire instead of actually going. So sorry, I went long. I don't know if you have a comment no. there. No, I've got probably 10 different directions All to right, cool. that line of thinking. But yeah, it's, you know, I think there's this, this piece that I'm just, I'm personally just getting into, especially as the way like the suburbanization of poverty, because you're right. Yeah. Central cities are now, they're having a resurgence. Uh, especially, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, maybe in the 80s and 90s, center cities were definitely in decline. They were in free fall. People had left and there was nothing being invested in those areas and because it was mostly BIPOC yeah. residents who, you know, city leaders didn't care about. I know that's a, a very totalizing statement, but I think there's enough evidence for, you know, that's probably a pretty safe totalizing statement to yeah, say. Yeah, I would, I would say. Yeah. And now that, you know, white people are moving back in and we've gentrified the centers of cities and, you know, tried to revive them, it's created sky high housing prices mm -hmm. and people are now being pushed out into the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of this interesting thing where we have this idea of the suburbs as being a primarily white space. And that's increasingly not the case as much anymore. Definitely in Dallas and cities in Texas, there's an outward push of lower income and people of color from the city centers to areas five to 10 miles out, fueled by the highways, kind of those 
first ring suburbs now being occupied by people they weren't originally designed for. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of this interesting inversion that we're seeing now. And it's really creating a difficult situation because the burdens of this infrastructure are now on these people because now we're having to pay the bills to pay for this stuff. Yeah. Because we haven't been paying the maintenance bills. It, I think Dallas is, if I remember correctly, like we have a $220 million a year deficit in our road budget just to maintain streets as the way they are, not to improve them at all. Mm-hmm. When you think about a city that has, you know, a million people like Dallas, you know, you know, a lot of economic activity, but then you have some of these outer ring suburbs where people with lower income are moving to and property values are declining and there's less access to public transit. Infrastructure is starting to reach that 40, 50 year mark of, mm-hmm. okay, we need to start replacing this stuff, but there's no economic base to support it because it wasn't designed in that way. Kind of like what Chuck Marone talks about. It's like yeah. none of that infrastructure is there. And so now people are going to lose out twice over because the infrastructure is not designed, whether that's highway or mm-hmm. street or mm-hmm. public transit, we are set up for just a, a massive reckoning. And we are just on the precipice of the yeah. bottom really falling out. And that's why these bills that are being proposed in Senate and Congress have, you know, two, three, you know, trillion dollar price tags. It's because we haven't been paying our, you know, yeah. we've been kicking the can down the road for so long that these problems are now seemingly intractable. Mm-hmm. And it costs so much to fix these wicked problems now. That's where I'm a little conflicted because I do feel in a lot of ways you could view the interstate highway system as one of the greatest follies of central planning mm. because it it created so many unsustainable patterns in the way we live and work and, and yeah. build. And getting back to the, the core of your work, there is this enormous infrastructure bill, if it ever passes. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll but, see. But let's just imagine a world in which it does, right? So you're going to have this injection of money into infrastructure. Is that even needed? Are we better off letting the systems fall apart and letting organic growth take over? It's a really interesting proposition. I hadn't really considered that. I think there are some days where I'm like, just let it burn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I may need to chew on that a little bit. I think that the the problem is because of the way we have defined infrastructure for so long, and because we have so narrowly defined that in the past. Mm-hmm. It is hard for people to see anything other than just funding highways, just funding roads, yeah. things like that. And these kind of normative ways that we view infrastructure make it really difficult to repair any of the injustice. You know, it's uh, Audrey Lord has, mm-hmm. you know, has this quote of you know, saying that we can't use the master's tools to free ourselves. We can't use the same things that we've been doing to liberate ourselves. Yeah. And so I think when we look at an infrastructure bill, putting more funding into things like public transit, buses, bus rapid transit, things that just don't get the funding because of how, how we've defined infrastructure. 
I think we're still focused on these really massive projects. Yeah. And I, I really, I, I do believe that the way to actually do the reparative work is it's at a very different context and a very different scale. I don't think a big Band-Aid is going to fix everything. I think it's going to yeah. take lots of small Band-Aids done at a very wide scale yeah. to fix things. And I think that's there's a little bit of nuance there. It doesn't mean we can't have a lot of money to do it, but it yeah. just means it can't just be the one thing that we do. Because uh, if history has told us anything, trying to do some big, large policy rarely works out the way we've intended for it to. That, my friend is the perfect dismount of any episode right there. Yeah, I have to say for a gas man turned nonprofit baker turned seminarian turned social justice infrastructure engineer, you're a pretty interesting guy. You actually covered a lot of the really, the topics I really grapple with and don't have really good clear answers on. And, yeah. and I think that's a tough space. I don't think people are willing to admit that they don't have all the answers and they're still trying to work through. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave it a review, and if you didn't and could keep it between us, that would be wonderful. I will also have a link to Colin's book in the show notes on ydhty.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and ye shall find. Now, here's what I took home from this conversation. Racism is often quiet because it only takes a few people to make the decision to bulldoze a neighborhood or pave over a graveyard, but it takes countless more ignoring the fact to allow it to happen and for that system to perpetuate. And you've probably gathered that I fall on the side of people who want to recognize these things and talk about them to make sure we never do it again. Now, the second part, and this ties into the last episode, is that large, centrally planned projects have huge consequences we never think that hard about. And I am honestly stumped as to whether these are a good thing or not, as it seems it creates a lot of distortions in the market, such as tying us all to our cars, that we end up having to subsidize into eternity. I would love to hear your thoughts, so feel free to hit me up on Twitter, at Dan Sally, D-A-N-S-A-L-L-Y, on Facebook, on You Don't Have to Yell's Facebook page, or via email at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. That's Y is in you, D is in don't, and so on and so forth. You can fill in the rest. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. Y-D-H-T-Y's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is made at Snake Killer Studios in loving memory of the big Geno, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye bye.